Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and you are joined by myself, Jacob, as your presenter today, and we have... Zane, as well. Here you go. Okay. So, um, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge that this always was, um, always will be, Aboriginal land, um, and that sovereignty has never been ceded. And um, I will, so for the first part of the program, um, we're actually going to be doing a bit of an interview later with um, soon with Graham Matthews to have a bit of a kind of discussion about the federal budget. In fact, that was probably one of the kind of biggest kind of news stories that has you know come out in the um, the media for the past week. So there's been obviously kind of a lot of discussion about it. But we're going to be having that discussion with um, Graham Matthews in a um, number of minutes. And I was going to just go. I thought me and Zane would go through, I guess, some of the some of the headline stories that are sort of been happening. You know, just noting some of the things that, and I was going to pass it on to Zane to maybe start off just a bit of discussion about um, this whole um, situation around Bruce Lima and Brittany Higgins. Yes. So the um, uh, the front page of the bourgeois media today, including the Melbourne Age. Uh, the headline is Higgins slams justice system and is referred to the court. Unlike the Melbourne Age, uh, we here at 3CR can't run our stories past a lawyer. We do get basic legal training and we are told to be extremely careful when discussing such matters um, because, um, let's say, the um, legal system that we have in this country is very sensitive to alleged external influences and um, lawyers can can point to some obscure community radio station publishing a story and saying, oh, well, they've, they've tried to influence the public and you know, influence this trial. So what I'm going to do in this context is just report on literally what is on the, the front page of the Melbourne Age, and it says Higgins slams justice system and is referred to the court. A lawyer for Bruce Lehrman has referred Brittany Higgins to the court and police after she criticised the criminal justice system on live television yesterday when his trial was aborted because of jury misconduct. Lehrman is alleged to have, um, and I must put a trigger warning on this story, um, you, you people will probably be familiar with this because it's a high-profile case at the moment, but I will put a trigger warning, um, Lemon is alleged to have raped Higgins in the office of their then boss Linda Reynolds in Parliament House in the early hours of March 23, 2019, but after 12 days of hearing evidence and submissions in the ACT, 
in the ACT Supreme Court and five days of deliberations, Chief Justice Lucy McCallum disbanded the jury after learning one member had undertaken their own research, which they brought into the jury room. Lehman pleaded not guilty and denies ever having sex with Higgins. McCallum described it as an, quote, unexpected and unfortunate outcome to the three-week trial. Higgins may have to step back into the witness box next year with a, re- a, a, a retrial with the case relisted for February 20. Uh, fighting back tears, Higgins stood outside the court yesterday morning and described the justice system as asymmetrical and having made her feel as if she was the person on trial. Um, sorry, I'm just finding the page here. Uh, Higgins said, I was required to tell the truth under oath for over a week in the witness stand. I was cross-examined at length. He, Lemon, was afforded the choice of staying silent in court, head down in a notebook, completely detached. I was required to surrender my telephones, my passwords, messages, photos and my data to him. He was not required to produce his telephone, his passwords, messages, photos or his data. McCallum said the juror misconduct, McCallum being the judge, said the juror misconduct was discovered during routine tidying of the jury room by three sheriff's officers after Wednesday's proceedings, with one of the officers accidentally bumping a, <laughs> accidentally bumping a juror's document folder onto the floor. When the officer picked up the box to replace it on the chair from which it fell, he noticed part of the title page of an academic research paper, the source of which suggested that the topic of the paper might be sexual assault, she said. It is beyond question that the conduct of the juror is such as to abort the trial. Um, I won't continue reading out the rest of the story, um, and I'm, I'm... uh, I feel I feel very constrained after the legal training that we got here at 3CR. I'm sure other people will be looking at this story, um, but uh, <laughs> I hope I can say this much. Um, you can understand why Brittany Higgins would be very traumatised and disappointed by this outcome, and 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 very traumatised by having to go through. Um, what she has described in that statement again. So, yes, probably won't say too much more on this story, but um, I think, yes, there is um, there is much to be changed potentially mm. to make the legal system a bit more um, easier to navigate and accommodating and. Um, Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think um, just one thing to note is, I mean, obviously, I think, you know, when the trial kind of resumes, there'll be obviously kind of more scope um, to kind of discuss um, some of the implications um, around this kind of around this trial. Mm-hmm. And of course, Green Left is also following it. Um, and, you know, there was actually going to be potentially, you know, some kind of piece or commentary mm-hmm. um, before this actually um, before this sort of delay actually um, ended up happening. Yeah. Um, they ha- they, we do have someone who in Green Left who's actually following, you know, the outcome of the trial, and we are looking forward. You know, we are looking to 
you know, produce some analysis on it when it, when it, um, when it finishes. So, mm. yeah, you can stay tuned for, um, for that, um, you know, in the coming weeks. It's not just going to be the bourgeois media that will be, you know, co- oh, yeah. uh, going through the sort of outcomes of this trial. It will, you know, Green Left will be at the forefront of actually trying to, you know, analyse and understand, you know, the implications of this, especially from a woman's, you know, a feminist sort of perspective. Hmm. And the training we've got here at 3CR is basically you've got to be careful in in sympathising with someone's case not to say something that may jeopardise their case. And and I guess that, that guiding principle is, is yeah, something that, that really stood out from that legal training that we got. Um, but, yeah, keep an eye on Green Left because people get great legal briefings before we publish stuff and, yeah, we'll try and unpack this latest development. Okay. Well, thanks for that, Zane. Um, I'm just going to play a quick announcement, and we might go on to our first interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio on Freezer 855 AM. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world, and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What you name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. And, um, we were talk, um, we, we mentioned before that one of the kind of biggest kind of news stories has, well, has been the unveiling of the federal budget, um, by our, um, by the treasurer, um, by um, treasurer Jim Chalmers. And of course, it's been something that has kind of, kind of, um, dominated the headlines for the past week. And Graham Matthews, um, who we have here on the program, who has actually been a regular, um, guest, um, for Green Left, um, discussing issues around NDIS. Um, and he is also the spokesperson for disability rights for socialist lines, but um, Graham has also written quite um, regularly on the issues of of the econ- of economics, and has just recently wrote a response to the budget um, that has just been published on Green Left, titled "Working People Have Been Dudded by Labor's Budget." So, good morning, Graham. Hi, Jacob. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. So, I guess to start off, I guess um, the discussion, um, Graham. Um, what are some of your, I guess, initial comments on the federal budget that has just been delivered by um, by Treasurer Jim Chalmers? To be honest, I think the uh, the title of uh, the article that Graham had published kind of says it all, uh, in the sense that working people have been dotted by this budget. So, it's not in the same. Um, uh, uh, it's not in the same scope, I suppose, as the, uh, the 2014 hockey, uh, hockey and Abbott budget, you know, which, uh, which cut, uh, sought to cut billions of dollars out of, um, uh, government funding, particularly for things like, uh, higher education. But it is nevertheless a bit of a damp squib, particularly, uh, in the, the context 
of the, the economic situation that working people are facing. Um, so in that sense, I think it was, it was more of a, a, a disappointment uh, and a missed opportunity uh, than anything, really. And um, I guess probably one of the kind of biggest, one of the kind of bigger, the biggest sort of political challenges that contextualises, I guess, this budget. And of course, Jim Chalmers, you know, goes on about it. You know, we're in a, we're in, I guess, a cost of living crisis, and you know, we have to deal, we can't, we have to rein in kind of inflation. And in fact, one of the real, one of the main contexts of this budget is inflation is actually reaching the highest that it's ever been, um, which is up to seventy one percent. And of course, this is. This is kind of the justification of, uh, you know, we have to prepare for hard times. Um, we can't increase wages, etc. Especially in the context of um, wage growth being very stagnant. So I guess what, you know, what is your analysis of some of those sort of issues that are clearly operating in the background of the budget? Inflation uh, was released, uh, as you say, uh, yesterday, I believe, um, or, or Wednesday. But at, at 7.1%, it's certainly uh, higher than it's been in 30 years, which is um, certainly um, uh, a lot longer than I imagine uh, many people listening uh, have either been around or certainly been working. And so it's, it's really quite a significant crisis. And uh, not only that, but it's also... The biggest drivers of that inflation are things that we can't avoid. Things like food, for instance, uh, things like um, uh, automobile fuel, particularly petrol, um, and, uh, and housing costs. So, you know, we all have to have somewhere to live. We all have to have something to put in our mouths. Uh, and, and most of us, particularly those of us who live outside of the inner city, uh, have to put fuel in our vehicles to be able to get around. So this is... Um, uh, these are costs that none of us can avoid. And I think, as you very accurately point out, wages are stagnating. Um, you know, the, 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 the average um, increase in wages is, um, has, has, has barely touched 3% uh, at a time when, um, uh, when um, uh, inflation is, is exceeding 7%. So it, it doesn't take a mathematician to work out that, that wages are going backwards. And at the same time, uh, albeit that um, uh, benefits, so whether it be job seeker or pensions and so forth, are updated um, uh, index for uh, for inflation. Pardon me, excuse me. At the same time, there's barely been any increase uh, in, in in the real purchasing power of um, uh, those um, welfare payments. In um, again, in, uh, in more or less thirty years. Uh, there was a very small increase by the uh, the Morrison government uh, last year uh, for for job seeker, but it's still it's it's at a painfully low rate, meaning that people who are stuck on job seeker for any period of time really are desperate, um, unable to uh, afford the basics of life, let alone uh, anything which may make life uh, that little bit more uh, easier to deal with. So it's um it, it's it's a real uh, challenge to working people. I think um, I heard um, briefly heard uh, Anthony Albanese, the, uh, the the Prime Minister, responding to this issue on um, on one of the uh, the breakfast radio sort of breakfast uh, TV programs um, earlier in the week, and he trumpeted the fact that uh, his government uh, intervened to increase the minimum wage by five point one percent, which is really only one dollar an hour, um, but at the same time. Uh, the, the, the federal government um, brought down a new uh, wage increase for Commonwealth public servants of only 3%. Um, and as the, uh, the, the, 
Deputy Secretary of the, um, the, the CPSU, the union for uh, uh, federal public sector workers, uh, said this is at a time when inflation was, was 6%. So really this is, um, it's not even, um, even for, for workers who work for the government itself, uh, they're, they're not being real in terms of um, offering any kind of redress to this rampant inflation. Not only that, but um, for those of us who um, uh, have a mortgage, um, the, uh, the, the, the real or the additional threat is that uh, when inflation is quite so high, we not only get hit um, when we go to, to, to buy our groceries, but we also get hit by increasing um, interest rates. And certainly there's an expectation after this um, very high uh, inflation rate which was, was, was released earlier in the week that the Reserve Bank of Australia is likely to increase interest rates again uh, when it meets on Melbourne Cup Day. Um, it may even be as high as, as half percent, um, which is making it increasingly difficult for working people to be able to afford to live in a house. Um, not only those with a mortgage, but also uh, those who rent, uh, because it's, um, it's almost inevitable that uh, this cost, this additional cost is passed on by uh, landlords at the same time as passed on uh, by banks. So this, um, this really does make things extremely difficult for um, working people. And there's very little in this budget, um, for, for, for most people certainly, that, um, that actually redresses that. Certainly there were a few minor things, such as the, uh, the reduction uh, in the price of medicine. So, you know, a, a script, the, the, the maximum cost of a script would be reduced from, uh, I think it's $42 to $30, which is certainly welcome. But it's a rather sort of it's a small it's a small step, but at the same time the federal government refused to uh, continue with the 50/50 funding of um, hospitals with the state, uh, meaning that there will be less money going to public hospitals at a time when public hospitals are absolutely um, desperate after two years of the pandemic, and you know albeit that uh, the pandemic has disappeared from um, uh, popular news coverage, it certainly hasn't gone away. So. There are ongoing uh, structural issues which the, uh, this budget has refused to deal with. Hmm. And going into, I guess, um, some of the specifics of the budget, I mean, I was going to, I want to sort of ask about, you know, your comments on some of the kind of issues related to the NDIS coming out of the budget, which is obviously a subject close to your heart. But I was also wondering about some of your comments because you've wrote, um, you've commented on some of the other, because um, one of the other sort of hyped up things about this budget that the Labor is sort of promoting is, you know, they're promoting the fact that, you know, there has been additional funding being allocated to extend paid parental leave, you know, which is obviously, you know, a good thing. Um, yeah. And of course, there's obviously the additional $4.7 billion, um of raising of childcare subsidies, and also the other element is the housing aspect of the budget. So I kind of want to hear kind of your comments on those sort of aspects of the budget, because those are the sort of aspects of the budget that have been sort of hyped up a bit by uh, the Labor government as, you know, as like almost, in a sense, the progressive elements of the budget. Sure. Well, I mean, they are progressive in a sense. Um, certainly, um, you know, spending more money uh, on um, childcare, on paid parental leave, and on uh, housing is certainly positive. But once we take a closer look at these things, we see the, the real limitations 
uh, to them. So particularly for paid parental leave, um, it is extending uh, paid parental leave to 26 weeks, which is very positive, and it's, it's certainly considered an international standard uh, that a parent is able to look after a child for the first six months uh, of their life. Um, it's also there's there's uh, discussion around um, uh, requiring uh, both parents to um, to share that paid parental leave, which again is positive in the sense of um, uh, encouraging both parents to um, uh, take responsibility for their for their child, um, and on the basis of a use it or lose it. Um, that being said, uh, it only uh, increments. Over, um, I think uh, uh, it's currently 18 weeks, and um, it, it only uh, increments over the next um, uh, five years, I believe, up to uh, 26 weeks. There are also big limitations. The the the, the, the paid parental leave is only paid at the minimum wage, uh, which the the vast majority of uh, working people in Australia are paid more than that, and very few could actually. Uh, and particularly considering those with either high rents or indeed mortgages or indeed a number of children that they need to support, uh, it would be very difficult um, for them to be able to afford to live for an extended period uh, with one of their wages being pegged right down to the minimum wage. And it's also the case that um, uh, superannuation is not paid. So, uh, And this is a particular issue for, for, for working women, um, and it's one of the key reasons, uh, that the fact of time out, out of the workforce, why... Uh, working women's superannuation balances are, generally speaking, so much lower than men's at the time uh, because women are generally forced to spend so much time out of the workforce looking after children. Um, and it's really quite unacceptable uh, that the, um, the Labor government hasn't uh, redressed either of these issues. In terms of childcare, certainly um, the, uh, the, the increased subsidy is welcome, um, albeit that... Um, this is, again, a really a direct subsidy in many cases to private childcare operators. Uh, it doesn't mean that the government will spend $4.6 billion building new childcare centres, which, which it will own and run. It's really simply pouring more money uh, into, the, into the pockets of um, Peter Dutton and his like. Uh, Peter Dutton owns a number of... Um, or his family owns a number of childcare centres in, in, in Brisbane. Um, and making, in many cases, quite quite handy profits from it. Um, there's no cap on the amount of money that a childcare operator can charge. So that's um, again, there's no guarantee that um, this will actually, in the long term, redress the uh, the cost of childcare, which can be quite difficult. Uh, for, again, for many working people, and fundamentally discourage, particularly women, from returning to the workforce, uh, certainly until their child goes to goes to school. In the context of the uh, the affordable housing, certainly, again, look, anything, any funding uh, to increase the availability of affordable housing, uh, particularly in cities like Sydney and Melbourne, um, is, is welcome. But the the scale of this, um, 10,000 houses over five years, really is pathetic. Um, it has to be twinned with the, uh, the additional promise to build 30,000 social housing dwellings but again, you, you, you look at the, the studies which examine the unmet demand for both social and affordable housing. And in, um, uh, in, in, in Western Sydney alone, uh, in the eight LGAs that make up Western Sydney, uh, by 2026, there's expected to be demand for 76,000 uh, social and affordable housing dwellings. Um, so this, this 
10,000, 20,000 if you add the states, even 50,000 if you add the, uh, the social uh, housing units as well, barely scratches the surface uh, when you look at Australia as a whole. Uh, it barely scratches the surface in terms of Western Sydney alone. Um, so really, it's, um, it's, 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 it sounds good and it's positive. Um, obviously, any, any step in this direction is positive, but it's inadequate. It's woefully inadequate. Uh, it's a damp squib. Um, and in that sense, I feel that um, the, the Australian people really are being gutted by this budget. Hmm. And um, I guess um, we're, um, just in terms of, I guess, I guess a bit of a concluding kind of question to this um, interview um, is what what should, I guess, a kind of socialist kind of response to this kind of budget be? Like, especially in terms of, you know, one obviously one of the things that we obviously advocate for as um, as socialists is that, you know, if we were to kind of do like if we were to kind of put a, a best response to a budget like this, you know, we would obviously be. You're advocating for more investment in healthcare, more investment in the bare necessities of life, like housing and, and uh, addressing cost of living, etc. But there's always, I guess, this argument from that's put forward by the capitalist class of how you're going to pay for it. And I guess I want to hear sort of your kind of concluding kind of response to that because I think, yeah, it, it's definitely, you know, we need, what is a kind of socialist kind of response to a kind of capitalist budget like this? The, the purpose of uh, governments in this context is redistribution, certainly from a socialist point of view. So it's, it's redistributing wealth from um, those who have too much to those who have practically nothing. Um, and there are uh, numerous obvious needs. I think um, increasing the rate of um, job seeker is obviously one of those. Um, in terms of how to fund, um, I think there are some, some, some quite clear cuts that could be made. Um, the, the stage three tax cuts, certainly uh, the, the, the portion of them, the very larger portion that kicks in for those over $200,000 is an obvious point. Um, the AUKUS, uh, 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 aggressive military um, build-up that Australia has signed up to, that's something which we, we really don't need. Australia doesn't need that kind of um, offensive defence force. Um, there's also uh, areas within the housing sector. I mean, even in 2019, the Labor Party went to the election with a promise to curb um, uh, the, uh, the, the, um, the the taxation uh, the, the taxation um, the, the franking credits. Yeah, no, no, no. The other one. Sorry, losing <laughs> <laughs> my words. The, uh, the, the, the housing, the, um, the um, negative gearing oh, yeah, for, yeah. Uh, for those who uh, for, for uh, losses on rental housing. Um, now, there is absolutely no reason why this needs to go ahead. There's also absolutely no reason why there needs to be such a, um, uh, a, a massive uh, capital gains tax concession for, uh, for those who own multiple houses. Um, these things are an easy take from the point of view of um, actually increasing the funds available for the government. There's also the Australian Institute has talked about um, some minor tweaks to the, um, to the petroleum uh, resource rent tax, uh, the PRRT, um, which would potentially um, recoup billions of dollars, particularly from the gas industry, which is making mega profits at the moment um, at a time when um, this, is, this is woefully needed by the budget. Uh, yet the, the government is effectively going to go slow to, uh, to improve um, any of that. Um, you know, there are 
major steps that the government could take to be able to uh, to recoup um, many of the, uh, the, the, the the outlays that um, socialists would like it to make, but it refuses to do so because fundamentally it's a government that um, that governs in the interests of those who are wealthy, uh, and it doesn't want to. Uh, it's very reluctant to uh, to actually make any um, uh, impost on, um, on 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 those with um, with financial clout. Yeah. Well, thank you very much um, for that, Graham. And, um, yeah, just for our listeners' information, um, you can read Graham Matthews' article on Green Left titled Working People Have Been Dudded by Labor's Budget. Um, but, yeah, I'd like to thank um, you, Graham, for um, being on our program um, and, yeah, giving a, good, a very kind of good uh, kind of overview and response to, you know, a bit of a socialist kind of response to this kind of um, federal budget that has just been delivered by Treasurer Jim Chalmers. So, yeah, thank you very much, Graham. My pleasure. Thanks, Jacob. All right. We were just speaking to Graham Matthews, uh, a member of Socialist Alliance, who has, you know, just we we're just um, having a discussion with him about the response to the kind of federal budget, how the federal budget, in a sense, you know, represents, you know, another kind of example of, I guess, of a capitalist budget. It's very much has a lot of things for the big end of town, but very much not much for working um working people um but yeah zane did you sort of have any comments you didn't get a chance to sort of say about the federal budget like yeah well there's a lot more we could do a whole hour and a half show about this but i think the thing that stands out for me is i think jim chalmers said oh we are merely the government there's not that much we can do to control inflation all right what a load of absolute bollocks that is uh, and the key thing that comes to mind for me is tax the rich. Like there's there's a there's a price gouging driven inflation that's happening right now. Um, putting up interest rates is supposedly meant to stop workers from um, frivolously spending all their money that they're making from all their extra wages uh, and fight wage driven inflation. That's not the situation we're in. We are in a situation of price-gouging-driven inflation as evidenced by the fact that corporations are making record profits across all different sectors right now. So if you're going to do something in the economy that puts the brakes on the, the class, the group of people that are causing the inflation, what you want to do is tax profits. And historically in this country when there has been more stimulus spending. And and I I think there is a connection between the inflation that's happening now and some of the stimulus money that was spent on things like JobKeeper during the lockdowns. There's all this money that was brought into existence by deficit spending and pushed out into the economy, and that's fine, and that was there for a reason. But you've got to recapture that money with progressive taxation with, with a higher company tax rate and higher taxes on top earners to pull that money back out of circulation once it is done its job. JobKeeper was there to support workers. It was not there to support the profits of companies. And it is absolutely correct and necessary to use progressive taxation to pull that money back out of the economy once it has done its job. So I, I just think... It's it's so painfully obvious to me that the way to fight inflation right now is tax the rich, tax corporations. 
And that's just so far from being even on the radar of what's politically possible to this spineless Labor government. Well, I'm just kind of reminded, this, it's a quote, I, I can't go into detail into all the kind of article that I'm kind of drawing on here, but I mean, what you kind of say, Zane, kind of reminds, I guess, of this quote. It's, um, it was basically in a, in an article, um, that was produced in Green Left, um, titled The Global Inflatory, um, Inflatory Tsunami is Made in the US, Not Ukraine. Now, there's a quote in it that says, I mean, as John um, Menard Kenzies explains, it is much easier to cut real wages by high inflation than by directly reducing money wages. It is a partially concealed cut and wake workers cannot negotiate with their employees over inflation levels. And I think that's a sort of quote that kind of encapsulates how the ruling class is actually responding to this inflation. Totally. They're essentially using the argument of inflation to actually rule out any discussion about wages, despite the fact that wages have actually been stagnant for more than, you know, more than almost a better part of the decade. Totally. And, of course, you kind of wonder, where is this actually going in terms of the nature of the capitalist system? Like, because one of the, the one of the issues with, with this is, you know, um, for the capitalist class... They rely on capital accumulation, and now when we're in a midst of a cost of living crisis, and people are finding it hard mm. to get ends meet, how is it? How if the, we get into a situation where people are not buying things, yep. that's actually going to create a lot of issues challenges for the capitalists. Totally, <laughs> and, and yeah, there, there was a German guy about 150 years ago who predicted this. 170 years ago, a gentleman by the name of Karl Marx. And capitalism likes its consumers rich, and it likes its workers cheap and low-paid. And, yeah, this is definitely a leading towards a a, a deepening crisis of capital because this is a very short-term thing where all these different capitalists are competing to up their prices and kind of grab their share of this this price-gouging inflation round. But it can't go on forever because (laughs) at the bottom of the pyramid... Is all these workers who there's no more fat left to trim. People don't have money to keep spending on higher costs in every direction. And and I just want to give a shout out to the Western Australian Nurses and Midwives Association who recently, and we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, passed a resolution calling for a 10% pay rise as part of their EBA campaign. And the spineless leader of their union came out and immediately said, oh, well, that's not realistic, and kind of like basically said, oh, well, I'm not going to really properly fight for this thing that my own members have just passed a resolution calling for. But that's what we need. Unions really need to push for pay rises that keep up with inflation. And when people like Jim Chalmers say, oh, workers should not fight for pay rises because that would make inflation worse, That is absolute crap. That is absolute garbage. Workers can and should and must fight for pay rises that keep up with inflation. And if there is some little bit of residual inflation, they can fight for some more pay rises. But yes, inflation is class warfare. And if we don't fight back and fight for pay rises... We're getting our ass kicks in the class warfare. Absolutely, and I think you know one of the you know one of the important kind of lessons as well is when it comes to this question of whether ten percent is a realistic pay increase. Well, at the end of the day, you actually have to fight. Um, you have to you have to be realistic and demand the kind of impossible because, in a sense, if you if if you don't fight for a, for a, on a high ceiling, 
by the time that the the capitalist class makes some kind of concession to you, they're not gonna. It's gonna. It's not gonna be. It's it's gonna be be, Mm. gonna be the bare minimum. All right. Now I'm just going to go play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And I was going to play a recording of a talk from um, Ecosocialism 2022, um, which recently had a session that they hosted on Tuesday, um, the, tw- um, the 25th of October, titled Ukraine, Imperialism and the Left. And this is a recording of a speech that was um, sp- um, at the at the at that forum, which was from Denis Palesh um, from the Social Movement Ukraine, which is um, a, de- a, dem- a social which is a democratic socialist um, organisation that is actually, that is based in Ukraine. Um, so, in a sense, we're getting actually a first hand kind of eyewitness kind of you know response from a from a left wing activist who is at the heart in, in in who is within Ukraine right now you know currently resisting um Russia's um in, invasion so yeah this I'm I'm, I'm quite um, this is going to be I think a very fascinating um um talk and I'm um, looking forward to playing it you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM Thank you so much for having me, and I hope that um, the electricity and the internet they will be stable. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm uh, Denis Pilas from uh, Ukraine, originally from Transcarpathia, now I'm in Kiev. And, um, well, I started as an activist in a student union called Direct Action and a group called Organization of Marxists. And now um, I am a member of, as you mentioned, the social movement. Um, the socialist organization called Socialny uh, Ruch in Ukrainian and uh, Commons Journal. Commons also has its English version, so you can um, take a glimpse on our analysis of the situation in Ukraine and abroad a bit of. Uh, and um, actually, we are now in uh, uh, in the midst of the, one of the worst tragedies in the history of this country and in the history of Eastern Europe in general, uh, possibly since um, the end of the Second World War, since the Nazi invasion uh, of the Soviet Union, uh, this land hasn't seen this uh, magnitude of uh, devastation and terror that was brought by uh, Putin's right-wing authoritarian regime by his uh, unilateral um, decision to uh, aggressively invade Ukraine. And this has already led to uh, devastation of um, entire cities and towns. So you have uh, many places in eastern and southern Ukraine, Izum, uh, Rubizhne, uh, Mariupol, um, that have been uh, destroyed almost completely. 
and you have also uh, many places, even in the uh, areas of Kiev and Kharkiv, where the the war has been successful for for the Ukrainian side, and uh, Ukrainians could repel the aggressors, but still it left over um, those uh, numerous, uh, countless uh, bodies of civilians who have been killed in places like Irpin, Bucha, Izum, and so on. So. Uh, what what was primary for uh, the people of Ukraine to withstand in this aggression that is in no way uh, um, it's uh, an imperialist aggression aggression of the Russian imperialist per se that is not not any kind of uh, you know dialectical negation of Western imperialism but it's direct continuation actually Putin goes in the footsteps of uh, George W Bush and all other uh, warmongers what they've done in Iraq. It's now uh, repeated and in some places in uh, maybe even in worst intensity here in Ukraine now uh, with uh, constant um, uh, shellings of uh, cities in the south and in the east uh, with um, uh, targeting civilian infrastructure and civilian housing. And actually here in Kiev uh, for these weeks we had um, they were hell out of this week because uh, the city has been targeted by uh, hundreds of, of uh, missiles and drones that were operated by the, the Russian military. Uh, so how how still uh, the people managed to um, persist in this uh, nightmare? It's uh, mostly due to this uh, very spontaneous and uh, very solidary resistance that emerged in the, from the first um, minutes of this invasion, when we see uh, the first weeks uh, of, of uh, uh, Russia's uh, army uh, entering Ukrainian soil and um, killing uh, local population, uh, was met with uh, all types of resistance. This means not just uh, people who were uh, resisting with uh, weapons in their hands, but also people who were protesting uh, in the occupied regions until these uh, protests have been suppressed because first months there were uh, huge uh, rallies in, in Kherson, in uh, Militopol and in other uh, occupied cities uh, with people with their bare hands uh, standing against Russian military vehicles and Russian armed soldiers. And uh, this involved people from all, all types of milieus, uh, Ukrainian-speaking, Russian-speaking people from other ethnic communities. But we also speak about those people whose uh, uh, work in um, uh, behind the, the, the front lines was very essential. And from the first days, we had uh, millions of people who were involved in the humanitarian effort to rescue and assist their um, other people from the uh, war-torn areas and from more dangerous areas. And uh, uh, we cannot uh, forget the, uh, the effort that was put by the um, workers of the state railway company who uh, actually managed to uh, save uh, millions of lives because they uh, transported uh, millions of people to safer places inside Ukraine. The, the war has resulted in uh, millions of people who have left Ukraine and become refugees in uh, mostly in the European countries, but also 
even bigger number of people who had to relocate inside Ukraine who were fleeing occupation and fleeing the war. And you had uh, people who were helping them on, uh, on the ground. You had uh, numerous um, uh, networks of solidarity that uh, were created in a very spontaneous way. And you had also the uh, sacrifice of uh, many pe- people in healthcare sector or uh, firefighters. And you can continue the list, the people who were uh, risking with their lives uh, to uh, protect others and also to just keep the, 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 the country uh, going, to keep the uh, essential services to be in place. And even now when Russia is targeting uh, power plants, power grids, uh, destroying uh, entire objects, uh, people... Almost immediately, you have the workers who uh, restore uh, these uh, energy connections and who uh, work their best not to have uh, the rest of the country to be frozen to death in in the coming winter. So, uh, again, uh, this is um, something that involved um, countless number of people. And uh, these people, the working class people of Ukraine, they uh, have been at the same time, while they are targeted by uh, by Russian imperialism, that is very clear in in its uh, intentions to erase any kind of you know Ukraine as a separate entity, Ukraine as a separate republic, with Putin blaming uh, Lenin and the Bolsheviks for establishing Ukraine as a separate Soviet republic and blaming uh, that they. Uh, then uh, disconnected this Russian, uh, great Russian chauvinist imperial legacy. And so so he's restoring the old empire and uh, assimilating uh, those who who have been um, subjugated. And uh, this applies both to these um, uh, occupied regions where they had some referendums that were, uh, you, uh, you, you cannot even... Ex- explain how how cynical it was to uh, to claim that they have like 90% over 90% of people uh, uh who voted for 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 uh, annexation of Russia because actually there was no no real voting there were just some uh, armed people who were coming from from door to door and uh, also there were some invented results when you have in in for instance in the Parisia region you have uh uh, maybe a third of population under the occupation and a third of them have uh, fled the region. And uh, again, then they claim that uh, their made up uh, so-called results, uh, they give uh, Russia the right to annex the entire region together with, uh, with the cities of Parisia that hasn't been occupied and so on. So uh, again, uh, this is very clear where, where it goes, and it's very clear uh, how brutal the, the regime that is installed on uh, on these occupied regions. Uh, but uh, at the same time, the, the working class here is also targeted. The same essential workers who are so um, who are at the core of this resistance, they are targeted by the neoliberal policies of our own ruling class. So. Uh, you could see how disaster capitalism works in, in uh, Ukrainian conditions as well. 
because the, the ruling class and some of the more, most neoliberal MPs and people in the ministries, they grab this opportunity to uh, push through their shock doctrine of uh, neoliberal austerity, of anti-worker uh, legislation, of curtailing uh, social and labor rights. And um, they have been um, successful in pushing through a couple of uh, laws that uh, now make the life of uh, employees much, much worse and uh, the possibility to sack them much easier. And they also are uh, now planning to uh, go further with uh, um, full-scale labor law that will... um, replace the existing legislation that still uh, has uh, many provisions that can be used to protect uh, labor rights and is quite, quite good, actually. Uh, So uh, this is the situation of this double challenge that is now um, that people in Ukraine are facing. And this is what uh, uh, the organizations on the left operate in. So um, again, from the the beginning of this uh, uh, full-scale invasion, the majority of uh, leftist, uh, trade unionist, uh, feminist activists, uh, socialists and anarchists, um, they joined in a way or another different types of um, this humanitarian and war effort. Some went to the uh, ranks of the um, territorial defense units that are incorporated inside the, the military and there were even some anti-authoritarian anarchist groups uh, that could create their own units there. And we have also comrades who uh, who are um, in the military. And you have lots of lots of unionists uh, who who were volunteered or uh, drafted to to the Ukrainian army. Um, and also you had people who created um, these networks like the. Um, uh, collectives, uh, uh, solidarity collectives, um, again, mainly by anarchists who are providing uh, help for for those comrades who are now in the, um, in the armed resistance, but also for members of the unions and uh, other comrades in need. And you had also many people who were doing uh, also everyday humanitarian uh, work to uh, provide uh, housing, to provide food, to provide uh, any kind of assistance to uh, those who had to replace, uh, mostly in the western part of, of, of Ukraine. Um, and uh, in places like Krivirich, that is uh, one of the uh, working class hearts of Ukraine, it's an industrial city um, with uh, different ore mining uh, facilities. Um, and it's uh, not so far from the front line, and it has hosted um, a big number of people who fled from uh, Kherson and uh, Mykolaiv regions in the south. And there, the unions, they also work as a non-stop um, humanitarian aid uh, organizations on this stage, and many of our comrades there as well. Uh, but also, we need to uh, remember about the political work in in, in, in times. And uh, actually, uh, what our organization, Social Movement, was doing from the beginning, uh, together with all this uh, other humanitarian, voluntary stuff and so on, 
uh, was that we were, um, first of all, trying to bring our um, political demands and uh, uh, the demands that uh, reflect the, the needs of, of, of Ukrainian population in times of war. And uh, as we think they correspond with a more broad global agenda for a fairer, for a more fair and um, egalitarian world, um, to have this on both national and international level. So we were speaking with um, uh, international comrades, and many of them were uh, providing different type of, uh, of help um, and solidarity um, about these uh, demands like the... Uh, how not just to um, to provide what is necessary here and now to to to, to the resistance, both armed and non-armed, so we welcome any kind of of uh, of support for uh, for the people of Ukraine, but also what we need uh, in a more far-fledged perspective, what we need to uh, rebuild. The country, not in the way it was, uh, it is run now, that is run by the, this peripheral oligarchy capitalist model, that all Ukrainian governments, notwithstanding with the name of the president and his geopolitical orientation, they were adhering to, um, to uh, maintaining this type of um, uh, capitalist relations and uh, having the core oligarchy uh, um, like untouched, uh, but uh, how do we need how we need these um, transformations to a kind of uh, democratic socialist alternative? And again, the country and its economy, it uh, wouldn't be um, uh, active both in war times and after the war in the post-war reconstruction if it's done on these neoliberal uh, capitalist principles that are now embraced fully by. Uh, so-called exports uh, in here in Ukraine as well, um, because uh, first of all uh, we were promoting such uh, demands as um, the cancellation of Ukrainian debt, and this is the issue that is common for Ukraine as a peripheral country in Europe, and for many uh, countries of the global south. This is actually uh, again the problem of this. Uh, vicious circle of debt where international financial institutions keep the um, peoples of, of the uh, entire entire regions and um, um, this this was really freaking out our uh, own ministry of finance it was like we we cannot it it, it can it can harm our reputation for the investors and so on uh, but actually, many uh, leftist parties throughout the world and uh, have adopted this demand, and uh, they also uh, see that if we can manage to do this with Ukraine, we can also promote this as a template for for other countries. Then we have the issue of uh, whether the reconstruction will be done on those neoliberal, neoliberal lines that were uh, drafted in Lugano, or we will have uh, more. Um, like more socially oriented uh, uh, gender and uh, ecologically just uh, construction of Ukraine, whether it will be done in the interests of a handful of uh, developers and uh, um, national and uh, transnational uh, capitalists, 
or it will be done to uh, benefit majority of the people, whether it will uh, uh, really um, include uh, all all uh, all the demands for uh, protecting um, decent labor and uh, for uh, creating uh, a renewable and sustainable um, economy. Uh, and again, this is very connected with uh, uh, the general issue. For instance, when we speak about um, this pressure that should be put uh, on the um, uh, on Russia as, as on any other aggressor in in, in these types of uh, of wars, um, and uh, again speaking about embargo against Russian fossil fuels, this should be not just a pretext to switch to another kind of murderous uh, uh, petrostate dictatorship that wages its own wars, uh, criminal wars like Saudi Arabia in Yemen. This should be done in the framework of a broader uh, green transition. And this should be really uh, uh, some launching point for uh, moving away from this fossil fuel model capitalism. Uh, but uh, again, this needs international solidarity and international action. And as for, for our own fights with, with our ruling class uh, against its antisocial policies, so we uh, launched a project called uh, Labor Defense that uh, includes both, um, we, we are doing legal uh, and other types of uh, help for those uh, workers whose rights have been uh, uh, broken by the employers in, in the times of war, uh, including those who use these uh, new neoliberal uh, laws. Uh, and also we try to raise the awareness of the general population and also of the unions, because the unions, they did a um, good uh, good job to, to help uh, people and their members, but they still uh, were, weren't so active in opposing, uh, um, in doing what unions are enlisted to do, to oppose as anti-labor steps. And again, it, to bring uh, some more international pressure to um, uh, manifest for the uh, Ukrainian ruling class that uh, they, they shouldn't do this. So um, this is a lot of challenges that we are facing now. And uh, hopefully this was a bit of a mess. Oh, sorry for, uh, for maybe it wasn't so structured. But I hope that you'll uh, put some questions that I will, uh, may specify on uh, more specific issues. All right. You're just listening to um, Denis Panish, um, who is a Ukraine socialist and a member of the social movement, which is a democratic socialist organization in Ukraine. And yeah, this talk, um, came from, um, it came from a, a public forum titled Ukraine Imperialism and the Left. And, um, yeah, that, that talk, um, the video of it should actually, and the video of that and along with other green left, um, sessions should actually be hopefully uploaded, um, uploaded on, on the, Green Left website in the future. So yeah, say to um, if you keep our eye on the Green Left one website, you'll be able to find you should you might be able to find details on on the web on on yeah basically of all our sessions um, that we had recordings of all our sessions. So yeah, all right. I'm just going to go play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. 
We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Huawei's Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Huawei's Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300-111-500. That's 1300-111-500. Wellways supports 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8 AM and it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. So, highlighting some of the different political events that are going to be um, going to be happening um, on on Saturday, October the 29th. There's actually going to be a protest. Um, actually, I think the the protest is actually titled. Um, pretty sure. Let me just go look at the. Oh, it's a bit. This is a, okay. There's actually going to be a protest at Penfolds Derby Day, um, which is an anti-Melbourne Cup protest, and that's going to be at 11 a.m. at the Flemington Racecourse and Victoria um, Racing Club. But I'm also aware there's actually another protest also happening, um, um, another community rally happening around Flem- um, in Footscray Park and Gardens, which is also about Flemington, and it's titled um, "Tear Down the Flemington Flood War." It's going to be a community rally organised by the Tomorrow Movement. Um, but basically, you know, comrade, um, people might be um, might have remembered the. The report I gave on Green Left, I'm um, from um, on Green Left Radio last week, where I discussed the whole Flemington War, um, which basically, when the floods happened two weeks ago, you know, this floodgate war basically protected the the Melbourne um, Cup grounds, hmm. but not not so much the neighbouring residents who had to bear the brunt of. Well, actually, added to the to the flood level a little bit. Yeah, and I think it was sort of like a classic example of like, you know, the rich, you know, but will pay massive amounts to basically protect their, you know, idols, so to speak, uh, but they don't have anything to say about supporting working class people, especially in terms of the impact. Well, of to protect their profits is a massive money spinner every year. They've probably had modelling done that shows this is a rainy time of year when the Melbourne Cup's happening, so you need to bully and badger to get this uh, this flood wall approved, even though it's not going to be good for all local residents. Yeah, it's disgusting. Mm. And on Sunday, um, there's going to be the um, a celebration, World Kabani Day at 1pm at the with speeches, music, dance and delicious Kurdish food, all welcome. And this is at the Kurdish Democratic um, Community Centre. And then on Monday, the 31st of October, there is the Melbourne Cup Eve Parade. Um, it's not, it's an anti- uh, Melbourne Cup event, <laughs> uh, and that's going to be happening at 11am at the St. Paul's Cathedral on Monday the 31st of October. And then on Wednesday, November the 22nd um, to Sunday, November the 20th, there's going to be the Palestinian Film Festival. Um, and yeah, you can look into kind of the details that there. Um, oh yeah, I actually got the, inf- I think I got the information wrong for the, for the Flemington rally actually. It's not this Saturday, it's actually Saturday, November the 5th. Um, so the rally tear down the Flemington flood wall is actually at 11 a.m. Footscray Park. I just had this memory that, um, it was an- initially announced for this Saturday, but I think they might have changed the date since then. Um, on Saturday, November the 5th, there's also going to be a rally, No One Left Behind, permanent reasons for all refugees. 
And then on Wednesday, November the 9th, um, there's going to be a book launch um, by Interventions, um, Interventions, um, titled The New Theatre. Um, and the book actually is... Um, I'm pretty sure I don't have the, all the um, information on about the book, but the book is basically about um, the type of kind of radical kind of theatre that came out of um, the Russian Revolution. So that will be probably be an interesting kind of event, and I'll probably get I'll probably look into getting the book actually. And then on Thursday, November the 10th, there's a protest at Anzel AGM uh, at 8:30 a.m. the Park Height Hotel, One Parliament Square in the city, and then on. On uh, there's a um, beyond the bars free CR fundraiser at 6 p.m. at Dadi Monroe Auntie Alma Forbes Gathering Place at 546 to 550 High Street, and then on Saturday November the 12th there's going to be an art auction, um, art meets activism um, at 2 p.m. which is a fun um, fundraiser for refugee campaigns and they'll be happening on Sunday November the 12th at the Meat Market Free Blackwood Street in North Melbourne. And then on Sunday, November the 30th, 13th, there's going to be the Trans Pride March at 12 noon at the State Library. And then on Tuesday, November the 15th, there's going to be a Palestine um, National Day. Um, that's going to be happening at 6 p.m. at the Federation Square. And then, and then the last um, event I just want to highlight is from Friday, November. Uh, well, not the last event. Um, Friday, November the 18th to Monday, November the 28th. There's going to be the Queer Film Festival at the Acme Cinemas. So just look at the Acme website for details on that. And then there's uh, one final free um, final event I'll promote is there's going to be the Run for Palestine 2022. Um, you can book um, for that by searching Run for Palestine 2022. And then the Free CR Music Fest, which is going to be happening at 3 p.m. at the Brunswick. Ballroom 314 Sydney Road in Brunswick. Actually, I, I, as someone who lives in Brunswick, I actually thought the Brunswick Ballroom got closed down, so maybe it is still open, actually. So, yeah. Um, Any events that I missed that you... Well, just a little one that I want to add, and if people are going to this, they're probably already kind of locked it in at this point. Um, Blockade IMARC is happening in Sydney next weekend, 2nd to the 4th of November. Uh, There's going to be a protest and a bit of a I don't know if they've got the numbers to do a blockade type thing like we had a few years back. Um, and uh, as part of the creeping authoritarianism in uh, late capitalism, the police are doing house calls of activists in the lead up to blockade IMARC. We're not even doing, we've moved on from house calls after the blockade to harass and intimidate peaceful protesters. We're now doing preemptive protests before blockades and protests. So Melbourne Activist Legal Service have put out a thing, a, a statement. If you are, quote-unquote, visited by the police, you don't have to answer questions, you don't have to have a chat, you don't have to return police calls, you can ask them to explain what they want, you can ask for police names and station... You can ask if they have a warrant. You can openly film the encounter. You can refuse to be intimidated. You have a right to protest. So, if any 3CR listeners have been uh, visited by the cops uh, because you're wanting to attend uh, Blockade IMARC, if you have friends who have been um, visited by the cops, please put them on to you. Melbourne Activist Legal. You can just Google it. MelbourneActivistLegal.org.au. Give them a call. Um, these, there's pro bono legal support out there. This is what it's there for. Give them a call. Get some support. Um, and do not be intimidated by the pigs. We are in a climate crisis. You absolutely have a right to protest. 
and the cops should be staying the hell away from your house if you are uh, wanting to do something so audacious as to attend a mining conference and say, hey, how about you stop destroying my future? That is not a crime. You're entitled to do it. You're not doing anything wrong. Quite the opposite. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Just I uh, uh, forgot just a few... There's a few regional rallies I just forgot to announce before, but I just thought I'd, um, I thought I'd uh, note there is actually... If you happen to live in Ballarat, and I think there are some people that might um, who listen to the show who do, um, there's going to be a forum November... 1854 was Eureka Invedible. Apparently, a bit of a discussion about the whole Eureka um, stockade. And that's going to be happening at 5.30 p.m. at the Eureka Centre, um, 102 Starwell Street, South Ballarat. I presume this might be a bit of an... It might be an event that's um, not necessarily organised by activists, but might be a, a bit of a... Yeah, basically, I think it is actually an event that goes um, that is actually going to be um, spoken by a historian and kind of have a bit of discussion on that. And then on, if you live in Geelong, there's going to be uh, on Saturday, November the fifth. Um, there's going to be the Geelong picnic and rally, no gas terminal at 11 a.m. at the Steam Packet Gardens, uh, Eastern Beach. And then, um, and then, yeah, there's also a rally um, in Ballarat on Saturday, November the. A 19th permanent residency for Neil Para, um, and I and I think yes, yeah, Neil Para. I'm pretty sure is someone who is um, who has been held in uh, in detention as an asylum seeker, and I think um, Ballarat um, the Ballarat is campaigning to give him permanent residency. So yeah. Okay, well, that's, um, that's, um, number of events. I'll go play a quick announcement, um, and then we'll go on probably to our next last interview of the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Hi, everyone. My name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with FreeCR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself. Through the year, and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website, 3cr.org.au, or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. Alrighty, welcome back. You are listening to Green Life Radio on 3CR. And on the phone, we have got Josh Cullinan, the Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, uh, it's always uh, an honour to have you on from the 
staunch rebel uh, union for fast food and retail workers. Now, I uh, came to talk to you this morning about the Apple strike. RAFRU members of Apple, Apple have started taking industrial action, including a couple of 24-hour stoppages. Can you tell us what the uh, union ABA for Apple workers is looking at um, improving for those workers? Yeah, sure. So, so Apple workers have had a couple of rotten old zombie agreements applied to them now for many, many years. And the in-store workers have had an agreement that was somehow approved and never should have been approved, but as we know with so many others at the Fair Work Commission in 2014. The company's looking to roll that over, make some pretty minor changes, but that agreement effectively casualises part-time work. So workers have no set rosters. They have to wait for the roster that gets issued to them. They have to be available 24-7. But they're not casual workers and they're not being paid a casual loading. So uh, workers absolutely want set rosters with weekends off, with consecutive days off, with set breaks that can only change the times with consultation and they can't change the days of work. These are core minimum conditions in retail, which... Anyone who has the minimum award applied to them gets, um, but Apple workers don't get. There's a whole range of other things that they're looking to improve. They want guaranteed wage increases at the moment. Apple's only uh, proposing to increase the wages of less than a quarter of the workers, and even then it's 2.8% in November next year, and then 26 in the following two years. Manifestly small increases that don't come close to inflation over 7%. But even... That the vast majority of workers will never see those increases. Um, and so there's also a range of improvements to other conditions. There's some big, great progressive claims in leave, so for guaranteed uh, gender affirmation leave, for guaranteed menstruation leave, for improvements to personal leave and annual leave and other provisions. So all of those things are just core claims that workers have been trying to get into this new agreement for three months and management have categorically refused to budge. Mm. Can you like, tell us a bit about the, the log of claims process for, for listeners who are not familiar with it? How did some of those demands about um, you know, menstrual leave, if you've got period pain or, or you know, need to take some time off around that, gender affirmation leave, how did those demands uh, be, become incorporated into this EBA campaign? Yeah, so um, we we have a fairly simple process, uh, which um, which may be a little bit different to some other unions, um, and that is that we just simply go to our members and we ask them what they want to see in their new agreement. They're the ones that are going to be taking the industrial action. They're the ones that are going to be fighting for it. And so we ask them what they want to see, and then the members feedback. Um, we, we we take on board everything they say. We um, we get the delegates to talk with all of our members in their workplaces about what they want to see. We build it all into a document, and then we give it to members, and we hold a meeting. And at that meeting, they debate it, they discuss it, we answer all their questions, and at the end of that process, at the end of that meeting, they vote on what they want in their set of claims. Of course, that can change after that. They'll, they'll decide if they want to make new claims. Each week they've been meeting and deciding if they wanted to modify their claims, increase them, reduce them, to try and get an agreement. Um, but that's the process that we use at RAFWU for, for all of our bargaining. Um, we just leave it to the members, and their democratic vote is what carries the day. Yes, it's uh, um, conspicuously not the way that a lot of unions do things, so it's really good to see. I think democracy is so important in unions. 
Um, Unfortunately, some unions um, think that they can only claim things they're going to win, which for us sort of defeats the purpose of empowering members to, to win what they want to win. Um, so we don't buy into that garbage. Um, we're happy to pursue the claims and fight as hard as members want to fight. Now, um, RAFU is not the uh, the nurses' union, the teachers' union or the construction union. Not that there's anything wrong with those unions, but they have got set rosters typically and weekends and they are in kind of more centralised workplaces. Um, RAFU, uh, in organising Apple workers, is organising a much broader group of little workplaces and I've noticed your social media around the strike has um, found it quite innovative. Can you just tell us a bit about how you've been using your social media to, I guess, promote the strike and, um, I guess, engage other Apple workers who are not yet members of RAFU? Yeah, sure. So, so I mean, Apple has about 3,700 workers. 3,200 of them are across 22 stores around Australia. Um, and our members are in the stores. Um, the ASU has members in call centres and workplaces other than the stores. And um, we've been uh, sharing, I guess, the stories of members through our social media since since day dot. Um, but we've been more recently using using our social media for the Apple strike to both initially share the first day of action, which was uh, Tuesday last week when the first one-hour strike in Australian retail history was nationally coordinated across the country. And we just shared the stories of workers coming together on that day. On Saturday, though, members, we decided that we would have a full-day strike. Uh, members wanted to do that and they wanted to have that day to themselves because they just don't get weekends. They don't get two consecutive days off. So um, they they were on strike last Saturday, and what we did was we shared the images of members engaging in what they wanted to do on their day off. And so that was with their families, with their pets, with their kids, with their community, with each other, some of them. Um, and so across the day, Saturday and then Sunday, we just shared images of what they were doing and how they were enjoying their time together. Hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of workers, I don't know, take the weekend for granted, but I think the way that you've profiled the simple joy of uh, here's what we're going to do with this day off if we can win it is, um, yeah, it's really important and a really clever way of, I guess, talking to one of the central aspects of this EBA campaign. Um, I think in retail, in, in retail workers understand that, that sometimes weekends are worked. Um, it's just here. It's not even it, it, a weekend maybe for some workers can be a Tuesday and Wednesday. But they don't even get that. They, they simply don't get two days off um, in a row. So for them, um, being able to have a Saturday off was a huge deal, um, even though they paid for it and our, and our supporters are helping them that need it uh, through our welfare fund. But um, but that, for many of them, was their first day off with their Friday off or their Sunday, first couple of days off in a row for months and months. Um, and, yeah, the, the joy on their faces um, in those photos uh, is, you know, it's just fantastic. Mm. Having been in a, a EBA campaign recently, um, I think I don't know. Like we, we're we're up against the challenge of low trade union consciousness, low class consciousness. People are like, "What's a strike? It's a bit scary. I don't know if I want to join the union." And I think part of this, uh, part of your social media, has also been, I don't know, making going on strike 
not this kind of scary, weird thing, but look, oh, actually, it's quite pleasant to, to take a day off. It's part of this protected action. Yeah, it's, um, it is about breaking down some of that stigma for a group of workers, the vast majority of whom have never seen industrial action. They might have heard of it, they might have seen their parents engage in it. But these are workers, by and large, that have not been organised, not been in a union uh, just three months ago. Um, you know, we, we've gone from a union of about 20 members in Apple three months ago to over 200 participating in this action. Um, and so there's still a long way for us to go, but the part of our work is breaking down that stigma, making it less scary. Um, obviously, strikes are serious, you know, and if this anti-union vote that's currently underway for a new agreement, if that goes down for management, then next week is, you know, going to be more serious again. And, and we don't we don't treat it um, in a silly way, but we did want to make sure that they understood, you know, how they can use this time and how they can use their, their strike action to both benefit them as well as impacting on the boss. Mm. Now, what's next for that EBA campaign? You've mentioned this vote that's happening. Um, if, the, if that EBA from the company gets voted down again, uh, where, where to next for the campaign? Well, members have already um, decided they're taking a one-hour stoppage tomorrow on, on Saturday. It'll be sort of simultaneous across the country, this one, so different times in different states. Um, and that's to basically come together for an hour and to vote no together um, and to symbolically vote no, so, so to, to basically use social media again to their colleagues to say they're voting no collectively. And it, it's not only the right thing to do, um, but it's the only thing we can do if we want to get the agreement they deserve. On Sunday night, no doubt, workers will find out um, if, uh, if they've won their no vote. Um, there's a lot of shenanigans, a lot of managers and supervisors in store bullshitting workers and leading them on about what, what's going on and putting pressure on workers. But uh, if we do win this, then on Monday night our members will be meeting together and deciding what bans and strikes they want to put in place to get this employer, you know, $2 trillion employer, get them back to the table and offering a fair deal. Um, and so uh, that's the next stage for us. Monday night, members will come back together again. Uh, we'll have a fantastic discussion, no doubt, about where to from here. Yeah, redness. All right. And how can listeners uh, support the Apple workers uh, and support this, this campaign? Yeah, so, so um, we've got a website set up for Apple workers. So if you're listening and you work at Apple, rafu.org.au forward slash Apple. Uh, it's got some basic information there. Um, and listeners that want to support, you can go there as well. We've got a special welfare fund. Uh, we're a new union. We're building a strike fund. Um, but that welfare fund, I think it's up to seven or $8,000. That's going to help workers targeted by the boss um, to, to help pay some of their wages if they're suffering hardship. So it'd be fantastic if you go to that website. There's a link there to our Chuffed uh, Welfare Fund. We'd be really appreciate any help that listeners can give. Yeah, nice. All right. Well, um, thank you very much for speaking with us this morning. And, uh, yeah, I hope the no vote is, uh, gets up and I hope you're able to keep kicking goals with this campaign and bringing people across to the union and can win this EBA. It's really good to see. No, thanks for having me on. I uh, really appreciate um, the solidarity and, uh, and hopefully soon enough we'll have some members who are able to talk, um, as well and, and share their story in the campaign. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Cheers, Josh. Go well. More strength to your arms. All right. Yes, uh, Josh Cullinan, the Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, uh, talking to us about the EBA campaign happening at Apple at the moment. So if you are 
in a temple of consumerism tomorrow if you're down at the shops and you see some Apple workers with placards saying vote no, go and say good day and share your support and chuck a bit of money in the tin if they've got one. And if not, head to the uh, yeah head to the Rafu Rafu website and uh, if you've got a few bucks spare, chuck into that welfare fund slash strike fund. All right. So I thought we'd, um, for the last part of the program, I thought we'd um, just give a bit of report on um, the 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 kind of um, work dispute that we've reported on at, at NOF. Um, but basically, um, after 40 days of strike and, and lockout, um, CFMU members at NUF, um basically voted on Tuesday to return to work. And um, this basically, the vote kind of follows essentially management withdrawing the, um, the attack on the process which, protect, um, which protects against labour um, labor hire. And of course, this was actually one of the most important kind of demands. Um, and I guess... Some of the um, some of the things that the workers had won is that they won a, a laundry allowance, allowance, uh, income protection scheme, or, or overtime as double time, seven point five percent increase of penalties, improved staffing levels, and union training. And of course, probably one of the big kind of disputes, and this goes back to kind of like discussion around inflation. Um, the work they basically managed to win a wage offer of a five percent increase for the first year, which is going to be increased from this year, July. So basically, all the workers are going to be back paid with that inc- um, 5% increase. Uh, unfortunately, from talking to the workers at the NOF dispute, uh, that back pay doesn't cover the time they were on the picket line, unfortunately. But um, And then, of course, there'll be a 4% increase for the next three years. So, yeah, that's sort of... that's um, That's... That's what was won. And I think, yeah, I think after 40 days of um, striking, you know, while they didn't necessarily get every single kind of demand that they um, I wanted, especially in terms of the wage rises. I think this is actually a very, yeah, it's a very expiring kind of dispute and actually just shows, like, you know, the potential that workers have when, you know, they stick together and fight. But yeah, I wonder if Zane had a comments on this um, dispute, like being a fellow CFMU member. Well, it's just a contrast. I was in a workplace and we... Uh um, we had a non-union EBA ticket, and because they're not union, they weren't able to go on strike, and um, we didn't win our EBA. Like we, we kind of got a few improvements from members going on strike, but the contrast is day and night compared to these workers who, in a very unified way, um, stuck it out for 40 days, and they've won everything they were demanding. Like it's yeah, it's bloody good to see, and uh, once again. It just goes to show that direct action gets the goods. If, if you don't fight, you lose. Um, yeah, dare to struggle, dare to win. It's bloody awesome. Yeah. And um, just a bit of a funny anecdote, um, because I was actually at the picket line when they had actually just voted on the ground, and I was actually talking to the workers. But one of the funniest things that um, one of the workers kind of said, one of the funny comments that the workers said was, oh, yeah, the boss has only, got, um, only won one out of ten of their demands. And, um, and I asked, oh, yeah, what was that demand? Um, oh, yeah, changing the pay um, date from Monday to Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm sure they'll that'll be a they'll be able to reflect on that on that special little victory. Yeah, and, as um, they're paying double time for all overtime. And <laughs> uh, another another awesome kind of um, kind of antidote from the picket of what the one of the workers said, and Zane, you'll love this art. Um, but they also said there's um, there's this big sign that shows the number of days that they've been on strike. 
And basically they said, oh, yeah, we're going to put that sign in the, the lunchroom. Yes. <laughs> Oh yeah, as a bit of a reminder <laughs> to uh, any to management and any of the bosses who might be going past the lunchroom, you mm. know, they're going to be reminded. You know, this is what we're capable of. Yeah. We can, if you try and screw us over again, yeah. um, we will strike. We will strike again. Ten ace. All right, and just before we wrap up, it's getting very close to eight thirty. Um, check out Green Left. Um, there's a story: justice for Cassius Turvey. Uh, as people may, listeners may be aware, and frankly, trigger warning, because it's really disturbing and wrong. Um, a uh, 15-year-old Aboriginal boy in uh, Western Australia has been has died after being attacked with a metal bar. Uh, apparently, some guy had a car in his window smashed, and then the next day saw saw this this kid and was like, oh, I think that's the person who broke my window. I will now proceed to bash him. It's just the the level of racism and violence is just un, unspeakable. Anyway, there's, there's going to be protests around the country. Get along to that. Um, yeah, solidarity to to the friends and family and, and to all... Yeah. If you if you look at green listeners out there, if you look at the green left website, we have a we have actually collected all the rallies that are going to be happening. Um, mm. There is going to be a protest in Melbourne apparently um, on November the second, but um, to this date, no details have been released. So, but yeah, keep an eye out, um, and yeah, we'll ho- we'll hopefully post the details on the green left website and also the green left radio Facebook page as well. And anyway, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, yeah, we've had a great, I think we've had a pretty great program covering a lot of different kind of aspects of politics. And, um, yeah, um, stay tuned for Earth Matters and stay tuned for, um, we're looking forward to speaking to you all next week. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Au revoir. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1800 634 206. Arise you workers from the slummers, arise you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise! We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back, reds underneath your beds and that crap.